Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, and welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm a fourth year medical student in Portland, Oregon. And today, I'm here to talk to everybody about one of the biggest changes that we will ever experience in our lady lives. Some of us have already said goodbye to this era, some of us are in the middle of it, and some of us are still years and years away from it. What you might be wondering I'm talking about here? Is it puberty? Is it those years after college when you feel like you have absolutely no idea what you're doing or how to be an adult? Nope. It's neither. It's menopause! However you want to look at it, whether it be something that you're looking forward to or something that depresses you or something that annoys the heck out of you, if you are a female, menopause will happen to you, and you will have the pleasure of continuing to learn about your body throughout the process. And doesn't it always make processes a little bit easier if you understand what is happening and, most importantly, why it is happening? Because menopause is so much more than just hot flashes and not having a period anymore. So sit back, relax, and listen to what you will one day experience or are currently or already have experienced or what you might watch your loved ones go through if you aren't of the female type. But first, housekeeping things have to happen. First things first, I am only a medical student Please do not take anything that I say as medical advice, and please consult with your doctor before making any changes to your health. Second, I hope that everyone had an amazing Thanksgiving. I've never been much of a Thanksgiving fiend other than for recognizing the importance of pie, but I had a pretty fun weekend hanging out with my stepdad, going mushroom hunting in the middle of a mountain, and then I got to go to the Civil War football game, which my amazing beavers won. They always know how to knock the socks off of the Oregonians, and they played such a great game on Saturday against the Ducks, all while knocking them out of the national championship, which, yes, I feel terrible about, but you know what? We deserved that win, and the Ducks played hella dirty, so I don't really care. Anyways, happy Thanksgiving, happy official start to the holiday season. And finally, please don't forget to leave a rating and review on the podcast so that this can reach new people every day. That's it for housekeeping things. Let's start in on our MenoCast and learn all about menopause. While I've obviously learned all of this in school over the past few years, most of my focus has always been more on pregnancy and fertility due to my history of being a doula, so this was a great refresher for me as well, and I got to learn right along with you guys. So let's start with some super basics about what exactly menopause is. Breaking down the word, from the Greeks we have meno, meaning month, and pauses, which obviously means a pause. So we're having a pause on our monthly things. The year surrounding menopause and encompassing the gradual change of ovarian function is called the climacteric, and it lasts from six all the way to 13 years in total. Whatever you want to call it, menopause is a huge change in a woman's life, and it's an amazing opportunity to embrace natural change. Menopause is when a woman has been without a period for exactly one year. If one were to go 364 days without a period and then have one, they're not menopausal. They're still considered perimenopausal, and we would start the count over from day one again. Of course, going 364 days without a period and then getting one would be incredibly rare, but it could happen. It's more common for women to go several months without bleeding and then randomly get a period. In fact, for women experiencing 60 days of amenorrhea, which means 60 days without a period, how they have the greatest likelihood of menopause happening within the next two to four years. So if you're within the normal menopausal age range and you've skipped two periods in a row, you can know that you are within reach of menopause. 
In American women, the average age of menopause is 51.4 years, but there is a progressive decline in ovarian function for several years prior to reaching 51. This leads to cycle disruptions and weird cycles in general, as well as all of our perimenopausal symptoms that are so classic, which we will get to in a bit, Ski. I want to talk about actual menopause for a bit before delving into peri- and postmenopause, both of which are way more of a time commitment than menopause itself. There is considerable variability around when menopause can happen in women. As I mentioned, the average is 51.4 years old to make that transition. But 5% of women undergo menopause after age 55, and another 5% between the ages of 40 and 45. Anything prior to age 40 is considered pre-ovarian insufficiency, or POI. Menopause is the decline of ovarian function, hence the disappearance of a period. So you can see how having early menopause would be a pre-ovarian insufficiency problem. The things that affect the age of menopause are fourfold. First, your genetics. Having a family history of early menopause means that you're also at higher risk of undergoing an earlier than average menopause yourself, which makes sense. The second factor is ethnicity. Natural menopause occurs earlier in Hispanic women and later in Japanese American women when compared to white women. The third is smoking. The age of menopause is reduced by approximately two years in women who smoke, and this includes second and third hand smoke exposure as well. And the fourth is your reproductive history. If you've never had a pregnancy, you are more likely to have earlier onset of menopause. In fact, correlations have been found between getting your period early, number of pregnancies, and age of menopause. In an Oxford study, they found that compared to those who had had their first period at age 13, Women with earlier menarche had almost twice the risk of experiencing premature menopause and 31% higher risk of early menopause. Similarly, compared with women with two or more children, women without any children at all had over twice the risk of experiencing premature menopause and 32% higher risk for experiencing early menopause, and 13% higher risk of having menopause between the ages of 45 and 49. So, long story short... When you reach menopause, is pretty variable, and unfortunately, there isn't a way that we can just look at you and say, on October 10th, 2046, you will achieve menopause. But maybe scientists are looking to figure this out and put you into a machine to know how these things or something work. I'm unsure, but if you know of somebody doing this research, let me know, because that's cool. Menopause has different cultural messages around the world. In America, menopause is seen as a sign of aging and age-related deterioration in both health and quality of life which is not very positive at all. In other cultures, menopause is seen as a sign of maturity and experience, and those who have reached it are a source of wisdom and guidance in the community. According to women's health guru, Christiane Northrup, she compares the hormonal changes to lifting the veil of hormones that can be both liberating and unsettling. And that makes me think of the archway with the veil in the fifth Harry Potter book. Before you actually find out what the veil means, you're kind of like enticed to see what's on the other side, even though it also kind of scares you. Menopause is something that you can look at as exciting and interesting, but also kind of scary. You've gone your entire adult life with things being one way, only for things to change dramatically, and you now have a new normal to understand. This can be a really big loss to some. It's the saying goodbye to youth. For others, this can be totally freeing and induce a sense of letting go. Estrogen is considered a hormone of nurturing, giving to others and relationships. As it declines, you can switch your focus inward on yourself and take the opportunity to discover personal passions that you haven't had the time to explore. 
Research has proven that biocultural factors ranging from your diet and microbiome to your social support and attitude towards going throughout your life can significantly influence one's experience and perception of menopause. At one of the clinics that I work at, we talk to a lot of women who are perimenopausal and dealing with these changes daily. I have never gotten the same answer out of two women about how they feel about reaching menopause. It's incredibly individualistic and don't let other people's feelings impact your own experience. Just like pregnancy, this is a time for you to understand your body and listen to what it is trying to tell you about what is most important in your life. One kicker that most people don't know is that the saying, I'm in menopause or I'm menopausal or whatever, it's actually incredibly incorrect. And menopause has this reputation of being a time period when you have these hot flashes and mood swings, insomnia, vaginal dryness, and all of that is totally false. All of those symptoms happen in perimenopause while you are still getting your period, or while you're in the process of counting that whole 365 days of no period. Menopause is actually just one day. It's when you reach the 366th day of no period. This day is your one day of being menopausal. Day before, you are premenopausal. And the very next day after, you are postmenopausal. Isn't that kind of crazy? You are technically only menopausal for just one day of your entire life, and then the next day, you're postmenopausal and you're done. I think it's so interesting how wrong our education system is about women's bodies and how wrong it's been over the past decades, most likely because our education system has been run by men who don't actually know anything about the women's body other than what they could stick their penis into, so I'm really not surprised. But thank goodness for pem- feminism and the work those before us have done to bring more education into the world, because this is stuff that everybody needs to know. Well, Knowing that menopause is only one day isn't really, like, that important of a thing that we need to know. But it is a thing, and we should know all the things about our body that we can. That's why I'm glad that we're here together, learning this stuff. Anyways, approximately 4,200 women become menopausal every single day. So, perimenopause is the period of time before a woman reaches 12 consecutive months without a cycle. This may begin as early as your late 30s, but the median age is starting around 47 and a half years old. You'll start the perimenopause time by having varying cycle lengths with some periods being early and then some being late, but by the time you're reaching the ending of perimenopause, you'll be having more like the 60 days between periods as that signals that menopause is within reach. The shortened cycles in the beginning of perimenopause is due to a decrease in the functional ovarian follicles, which therefore shortens the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, which is the first phase before ovulation which then causes cycles to shorten in length to 25 days or less. Eventually, cycle length and interval will begin to increase due to cycles being predominantly anovulatory, meaning that you don't ovulate or have a luteal phase defect in the fourth decade. The symptoms that tell you that you are deep into perimenopause are as follows. Hot flashes, which 80% of women will experience and is the most common symptom of perimenopause, but only 20 to 30% of women seek medical care for their flashes. Also, insomnia, weight gain and bloating, mood changes, the obvious irregular menses, painful breast tissue, depression and anxiety, headaches, joint pains, sexual function changes, and vulvovaginal changes. Not every woman will experience all of these symptoms. Some women will have terrible symptoms that affect every single day of their life, while others will barely feel the change at all. But the main question is why these symptoms happen. Is it just because we're running out of estrogen? Well, estrogen is a really big part of it, of course, but there's so much more going on. 
Let's start by doing a menstrual cycle review. If you listened to the sperm elevator episode two weeks ago, you know all about the hormones, but here's a little refresher for context. The hormone FSH comes from the brain and triggers the development of follicles within the ovaries. These follicles produce estrogen and become an egg, which is then released for possible fertilization. As we age, the ability of each follicle to produce estrogen declines, so the brain produces even higher levels of FSH in an attempt to force your ovaries to cooperate. Kind of like if you were to raise your voice when talking to someone in a different room if you can't hear that they're responding to your questions. Without sufficient estrogen production to tell the brain that the ovaries are listening, FSH will remain highly elevated, as if the brain just keeps shouting at the ovaries to produce estrogen, but the ovaries are like, yo, we had a going out of business sale already. Didn't you see the sign? We're closed. So elevated FSH levels are synonymous with menopause, and levels over 30 is typical at this stage in life. But hormone levels aren't generally needed to make a diagnosis of menopause, due to the incredibly huge daily and even hourly fluctuations, making hormone levels an unreliable marker of where you might be in this transition. Many already know that with perimenopause comes vaginal dryness and is often termed as vaginal atrophy. I have a problem with this terminology. There are many changes down south, but vaginal atrophy is only a piece of the pie. The lower third of the vagina is rich with estrogen receptors and therefore does become impacted during this time of declining estrogen, of course. But there are also estrogen receptors in the clitoris, the labia, the urethra, and the bladder, so the symptoms and physical manifestations are not just confined to the vagina. And think of the word atrophy for a second. What do you picture in your head when you hear that word, atrophy? I think of something like withering away, getting smaller, and eventually dying. Why on earth should we associate a major and normal change in older women with withering away, drying up, getting small, and death? Women are already diminished by society enough as we age, and there's a general negativity surrounding menopause for centuries. For women born in the 1900s, their life expectancy was only about 48 years. It's now 81 years for women, which means that we are living through menopause for over 30 years, making postmenopausal periods a pretty significant time period in our lives. There is no space for living through 30 plus years of negativity. So this view of shriveling up and being done with life, it, it needs to end. Menopause has often been referred to as a deficiency disease and not a natural bodily process. From the book The Estrogen Errors by Gerilyn Pryor and Susan Baxter, they write, Our culture finds it easy to blame women's reproductive systems for disease, linking the menopause change in reproductive capability with aging, making menopause a point in time rather than a process and labeling it an estrogen deficiency. All of these are reflections of non-scientific prejudicial thinking by the medical profession. This is exactly why most people are unaware that menopause is actually just one single day, and it's the process that really, really matters. There's new terminology that avoids the negative pejorative connotations, calling these changes genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which is encompassing of all the organs down there that are experiencing changes, and it's more accurate and more inclusive. So estrogen increases blood flow to the tissues, and it helps us to maintain tissue integrity, strength, and elasticity. As these levels drop in perimenopause, the tissues will become obviously more fragile and will lose their elastic ability to stretch. Imagine a really cold rubber band as opposed to a warmer one. 
Nearby skin can also become thinner and feel drier. There can also be a redistribution of fatty tissue. The labia majora can shrink in size or shape. The labia minora can also get smaller, and the vaginal opening can also lose its ability to stretch. The erectile tissue of the clitoris decreases with age, and pubic hair turns gray. Now, you may assume that the change in someone's head hair color would also mean that their pube hair color would also be changing, but actually, the two are completely unrelated. The changing of hair color has nothing to do with hormone fluctuations, but due to the pigment melanin production declination. So, if the hair on your head begins to gray early on, this does not mean that you'll gray everywhere else early on as well, or vice versa. Moving up into the vagina, the lack of estrogen affects glucose deposition in the vaginal walls. As the cells lose volume, they have less room to store glycogen, which feeds the lactobacilli bacteria. These are the good bacteria, and they then begin to die, and different, not good bacteria populations can begin to take over. This can lead to a change in vaginal odor, a change in cervical mucus, as well as in the fluid that leaks from the blood vessels within the vagina. Given these changes, the vagina can feel drier, and lubrication during sexual arousal is therefore reduced. The vaginal tissues also become thinner and lose their ability to stretch. For some women, even the size of the vagina can shrink, either in width or length. All of these changes can cause microtrauma or even visible trauma with sexual activity. As we move to the urethra, the same loss of tissue support and integrity can cause some of the cells of the urethra to protrude from inside to the outside and become irritated. This is called a caruncle, and many women confuse these for cancer. That's how intense they can look. A caruncle is less than a centimeter in diameter, and it's red and beefy. This outpouching of the urethra, as well as the change in vaginal bacteria and lack of estrogenic support, all leading to a higher risk of UTI transmission, as well as at least 50% of menopausal women reporting urinary leakages. Urinary incontinence is the main symptom of genitourinary syndrome of menopause, also known as GSM, and is often associated with sexual dysfunction. Unfortunately, GSM isn't a disorder only associated with perimenopause, but by three years after becoming postmenopausal, 50% of women still experience GSM. Of those 50% of women, 50% report that their symptoms interfere with their sex life, which is 25% of all postmenopausal women. That's a lot of women. And it isn't known if the symptoms of GSM truly reduce over time or if women just give up seeking care for their symptoms because of how many doctors have dismissed or ignored them too many times or if women just become less bothered because of other medical or life conditions becoming more of a priority or if general priorities shift due to a lack of sexual partner or if their partner isn't able to have sex. What we do know is that most women at this time don't attribute their symptoms to menopause anymore. In one study, only 4% thought that their symptoms were connected to menopause. No one wants to believe that they have an age-related symptom, and talking about sex is already hard enough in our society. Talking about old people's sex problems is even harder. Society wants us all to be sweet, pie-making, doting grandmothers and not sexual beings, so there are very few studies and research available to the general public around menopause in comparison to other aging conditions like low back pain, osteoporosis, or arthritis. I did find one study done with over 800 postmenopausal women that found that the most protective factor for these vulvar and vaginal microscopic cellular changes, apart from hormonal influence, is actually being overweight. Medically, this makes perfect sense because, as you all know from previous episodes, estrogen hangs out in fatty tissues. 
So having more fatty tissues around means that more estrogen is also around for longer. That same study also looked at the difference in race when it came to these cellular changes and found that African-American women had much fewer changes from GSM, but this didn't correlate to having less postmenopausal symptoms. I mentioned earlier that one of the main symptoms of GSM is urinary incontinence, or losing urine involuntarily. This is due to less estrogen thinning out the urethral lining and the surrounding pelvic bowl muscles also can weaken and relax with age. Pelvic organ prolapse and pelvic floor therapy is going to be its own new episode in a few weeks, but because urinary continence is common enough in menopause, let's throw it in here as well. I listened to a speaker a few weeks ago who is a pelvic floor therapist, and she told about this time when she was at her kid's birthday party at a trampoline park, and she noticed that she was the only adult female who was jumping on the trampolines. All the other women said that they were too worried about accidentally peeing themselves or having the feeling of things falling out, to put it bluntly. Unfortunately, urinary incontinence, urgency, and frequency are so common, and many people just brush it off as getting older or a consequence of having kiddos. But there's so much that we can do for incontinence and a loss of bladder control at any age, so advocate for yourself and get assistance so that you can have all the fun in the world at a trampoline park because, holy heck, they are so much fun. There are two types of urinary incontinence in women that are most common, and knowing which type you have helps you to advocate for yourself further and get the help that you need. The first is stress incontinence. This is caused by weakened or relaxed pelvic floor muscles. With this type of incontinence, you'll most likely leak with coughing, laughing, sneezing, or lifting heavy objects. This is most common during perimenopause, but doesn't typically worsen because of menopause. The second is urge incontinence, also known as overactive bladder. This is caused by, you guessed it, an overly active or irritated bladder muscle. The most common leakage times with this type is when you get a sudden and frequent urge to urinate when you have to go now, and that little piddle comes out as you waddle run to the bathroom. If you think about it, this doesn't really make sense, but the bladder is a muscle, and actually, when you aren't going pee, your bladder is relaxed. In my mind's eye, and when I think about it, I would assume that I was holding my urine in, which meant that my bladder muscle would be contracted to hold in that pee, and then that sense of like, ah, while you're peeing a big pee, that's when it would be relaxed. But it's actually totally the opposite. So it should be relaxed about 95% of the time. When you're urinating, this is when the bladder contracts. So if the bladder is constantly contracting and is overly active, it's going to cause leakage and the feeling like you always, always have to go. This is one of the reasons why if you have a UTI, you feel like you always have more pee to get out. You don't actually, but your bladder is mad as hell because there are nasty bugs all up in its grill and it's irritated. So urinary incontinence is common during peri and postmenopause, but it is not an inevitable result of aging and should not be considered normal or passively accepted if it bothers you. Approximately 25% of women with incontinence experience incontinence with sex, which is embarrassing, and it makes one want to avoid having sex with their partner, or make them be tense the entire time and not actually be able to relax and enjoy the sex. Once again, this does not have to be your new normal, and you have options if this is something you're dealing with. On another note, if you're kind of like, meh, I'm just kind of done in the sexy department for now. That's also totally okay. As long as you are making that decision based on your actual emotions and not based on the fact that you're scared of peeing on your partner or if you're scared of the pain. If you are truly just like, I don't really want to put in all that effort or even have to look at another person's genitals, 
That's totally okay. Unfortunately, despite some old incredibly inaccurate studies, the vagina is not a use-it-or-lose-it commodity. The vagina doesn't close up, shrivel up, or dry up if you are not having sex. In the 2009 phenomenal movie, It's Complicated, they talk about how their friend didn't have sex for forever and then her vagina grew back together and she had to get a vaginoplasty to fix it. Now, if you've listened to my super hymen episode, you know that all of that is BS and vaginoplasties don't really do that. And now you can stop worrying about your vagine closing up because you're deciding to be out of business for now. You can always change that decision in the future and the state of your vag won't be any different than if you had sex all the way through to your 80s. Probably. No matter what, you will need some sort of support either way. So listen to your body and soul and decide for yourself if or when you want to hang up the close sign and know that you can always flip it back to open whenever you want. There was a 1981 poorly done study that I mentioned earlier that looked at this use it or lose it concept and evaluated 24 menopausal women who were having sex and 21 who were not having sex which is an absolute tiny study for something like this, and there was no visual difference between the two groups other than a few trends, which don't count statistically with the small of a group, and tissue samples were not actually even taken to assess microscopic changes. And yet they still claimed that because the group that was having sex had higher testosterone levels, that they had higher rates of protection than those who didn't, which means absolutely nothing because we all now know that testosterone has nothing to do with the state of your vagina throughout peri and postmenopause. So that study sucks and we should just wipe it from this earth. Your vagina doesn't like shrivel up in general. Most of these changes are actually microscopic and are more physically felt than visually seen. Imagine an old apple versus an old rubber ball. The apple is shriveled, it's brown, soft, and smelly, and the only thing to do with a gross apple is to throw it away. This is not the case of the ball. The ball, well, maybe it'll be a little bit lighter in color, maybe it'll be a little bit crispier to the touch, but it still does its job, it'll still bounce, and you can still play with it as you used to, just maybe with a little bit more care. So since we're talking about sex, let's talk a little bit more about what you can do to encourage a healthy sex life, if that is something that you are still interested in doing. First things first, if you are still in perimenopause, meaning that it has not been one solid year of no bleeds, you can still get pregnant. Let me repeat that. Just because you are over the hump of prime fertility, if you are still bleeding, that means you are still ovulating, which means you can still fertilize an egg and get pregnant. If you are not interested in being pregnant, no matter what, if you haven't crossed that 365th day, you must use some kind of birth control if you would like to prevent a baby from happening. Of course, as you get older, fertility declines, And once you are in this stage, pregnancy isn't common, but it is possible, and we all know by now that the only two ways to avoid pregnancy are abstinence and preventative measures. So glove up or pill down and protect yourself if you are not interested in producing a baby. Many women believe that once they've reached this time, they are good to go to stop their birth control methods, but nope! On that note, you are also still at risk for STIs. If you are engaging in any sort of fluid sharing, there is a risk for STIs, and once again, barrier methods will be your friends. In 2019, it was found that the number of gonorrhea cases rose 164% among Americans age 55 and older between the years of 2014 and 2019. Syphilis rose 120%, and chlamydia rose 86%, all of those among older individuals. So once again, glove up. And as always, because I have to say it, PSA, that's not medical advice. 
And preliminary data is suggesting that those numbers have continued to increase in 2021 and 2022 for older adults as well. Going back to our rubber ball analogy, how do you care for a rubber ball? Well, I don't really know because I'm not a toy specialist. I'm a doctor in training. But in the vulvar world, investing in a good lubricant is the first step. Remember, there is a difference between a lubricant and a moisturizer, and one should also invest in a good moisturizer while they're at it. A moisturizer is used to rehydrate vaginal tissues and replace natural lubrication. They are used daily, not just during the act, and they have been scientifically proven to reduce symptoms, especially the sensation of dryness. A lubricant is used during sex and will help to replace the necessary lubrication to avoid friction-based injuries. Both are important and helpful. During this time, your libido may also go up or down, both are normal, and even if it goes down, your need for intimacy may increase. After menopause, women can obviously still want intercourse, but it can change, and there is more of a need for intimacy during this age. It's all about heightening the desire, pushing the sex drive, both partners taking more time and care to enjoy their sexual experience to the fullest. At least according to Dr. Lynn, a sex educator working for AARP, so you know that she knows her old people stuff. If you're feeling like you still want to engage in sex with either yourself or a partner, and you have things that are holding you back, whether it be fear of peeing or fear of pain or low libido or low body image or confidence or any other millions of reasons, check in with a provider you trust to get some assistance because this doesn't have to be your new normal or your new forever. You are most definitely not alone in your fears or beliefs, and there are other women out there who are dealing with the exact same situation. And sharing your struggles only helps to bring everyone together. So please don't be afraid to reach out to others and discuss the pros and cons of getting older. If you're listening to this and you're like, OMG, I'm so scared about XYZ happening to my body, or you're currently going through perimenopause or postmenopause, and you have stories to share but nobody to listen, please reach out to me and you can share them with me. I would love to hear your menopause stories or menopause fears, and I would love to help you help others with your expertise as well if you have it. You can always reach out to me anonymously at www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum if you prefer to be anonymous. Alrighty then, let's move right along. There are, of course, other symptoms associated with perimenopause that are just as important as the vulvar, vaginal, and urinary physical changes that we've been discussing. Let's talk mood, because this is a symptom that not only the women going through this transition experience, but also those around them. Let's consider menopause like puberty in reverse. Over the Thanksgiving weekend holiday, I was hanging out with an eight-year-old who has turned into an absolute raging ball of hormones, and she is very different from the kiddo that she was a few years ago, who was just happy to be spending time with me. This was a shock to me, as I expected her to be excited to see me and just happy in general, as she always has been. But hormones do a lot to a person's mood and ability to handle situations, and there is no reason to blame the person going through these hormonal shifts, because they can't help it. In menopause, you're going through the same stormy set of emotions that we experienced in puberty, which can actually urge us as women to complete any unfinished business from our early years. Did you have kids really young and not get to travel around Europe with all your friends like you wanted? Well, guess what? Now's your time because your kids are grown and moved out and you can move to Europe for all anybody cares. Perimenopause could be considered the wake-up call to your life cycle. If you happen to have been pressing the snooze button on certain areas of your life before now to get other priorities done, now you'll have the wake-up to reframe these priorities as this time period brings up the parts of our lives that need attention, and you can no longer avoid them anymore if you want to truly flourish in the second half of life. 
This time period is as if you went down into your basement or up into your attic and found boxes on boxes of stuff to be sorted through that you had just kind of shoved up there and forgot about. Maybe it's time for you to go back to college and get a degree that you want, or grieve a loss that you didn't really have time to grieve before. Some of the feelings of anxiety, depression, and irritability, etc., 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 that you'll experience during menopause are your inner guidance leading you towards the parts of your life that actually need attention. On a physical level, of course, this emotional ability is due to declining estrogen and progesterone levels. Peri- and postmenopause, however, do not cause depression. Studies have actually shown that there is a lower incidence of depression in women ages 45 to 64 than in the younger women, but it's other life stressors without the support of the hormonal influence that cause mood swings. 25% of women in their menopausal years are caring for an elderly relative. Many are dealing with career stressors and changes to the family dynamic as kids grow up or relationships change. Surprisingly, the emotional ability during this time period is more indicative towards making changes to improve your personal situation than it is to exacerbate it. So how to cope? Recognize where the emotions are really stemming from and take the time to evaluate their worth and see if there are openings for changes. Of course, there are other opportunities for treatment with hormone therapy, botanicals, homeopathy, acupuncture, and talk therapy that your doctor can recommend to you as well to help boost the changes that you might need to make in your life. Secondly, for common symptoms, the all-too-familiar hot flashes. Characterized by a feeling of overwhelming heat and sweating, particularly around the head and neck, for most, there is an occasional sensation of warming with slight sweating, but about 10-15% to of women experience at least hourly waves of heat and drenching sweats that disrupt daily activities and can result in severe sleep disturbances, which, going back to the mood swings, can also exacerbate depression and anxiety if you're not sleeping. Again, not saying that menopause causes depression, but depression doesn't exist in a vacuum, and there are always other situations that play into depression and mood lability in general. The actual physical cause of hot flashes is believed to be related to neurotransmitter changes. Estrogen modulates the excitatory receptors in the brain. When estrogen drops as we age, these receptors are suddenly activated. Once activated, central levels of norepinephrine can rise, therefore narrowing what is called the thermoneutral zone, which means it is easier to go outside of that just-right zone with temperature changes, therefore increasing the chance of a hot flash. Women can actually experience hot flashes during adolescence and reproductive years, or after having a baby for other reasons than estrogen deficiency. As I mentioned, and probably any woman who has ever had night sweats knows, hot flashes can often interfere with sleep, but this isn't just about the heat and discomfort or the subsequent freezingness after you've sweated through all your clothes and sheets and then you have to continue laying in that bed. And yes, I'm speaking from experience because I get night sweats like a perimenopausal woman and I'm 29 years old and I have an estrogen dominance disorder, so I know that it doesn't just come from running out of estrogen. There are other components besides just the heat that plays a role in sleep. Our neurotransmitters, neuropinephrine, serotonin, and GABA are all major components of sleep. Norepinephrine disrupts it while GABA promotes it. Once again, with a perimenopausal rise in norepinephrine, you have your disrupted sleep and increased anxiety reasoning right there. Progesterone also supports GABA function. In this time, we have less progesterone circulating, so therefore less GABA. Do you see the circle? Everything is uber-connected, and taking any piece out of the puzzle affects the rest of it. It's not just removing estrogen that is the problem. 
Excess stress hormones from depression, anxiety, worry, sleep deprivation, and nutritional deficiencies are actually often the root cause of hot flashes that occur for years or that don't respond well to the standard menopause treatments. A recent Yale study found that 75% of women with menopause complaints leave their doctor's offices frustrated and without answers. The basic understanding of the connections between neurotransmitters and hot flashes that I just explained could change it all. Everything in the body is connected, and every single hormone, neurotransmitter, and even cell have to talk together to work properly. If you remember from episode 8, the thyroid drummer analogy, if the drummer in a band is beating too slow for the rest of the band, the entire song is going to be slowed down. If the thyroid isn't working as well as it could, the entire body is going to be bogged down and not working well either. As estrogen dwindles and as our stress hormones increase in response, there will be a response from the entire body, and unfortunately, that can cause hot flashes. Bottom line, hot flashes are common, occurring in 50-85% to of women, sometime in their climacteric years, and their occurrence is not only due to declining estrogen, but the entire interconnectedness of the body trying to regulate itself. Some risk factors that increase the likelihood of hot flashes are obesity, as obese postmenopausal patients have higher estrogen concentrations, leading to an increased peripheral conversion. Weight loss can actually help the hot flashes. Also, cigarette smoking, reduced physical activity, being of African-American descent, and patients that have variations in the gene TACR3. Next on the symptom list is memory issues and fuzzy thinking. One of my favorite mentors is currently early menopausal, and she comments on the fuzzy thinking all the time. And honestly, I think that this eases patients' minds of those who are in the same boat. Us naturopaths are thought of as so healthy and never experiencing these things that we're actually treating ourselves. But in reality, we are people too, and we all have the same experiences. And the healthiness, well, I'm eating a packet of Fun Dip as I record this, so take that piece with a grain of salt, or sugar, I should say, as I lick ground sugar off of a compacted sugar stick. This cotton head is totally, completely normal, and please don't just assume that you're getting Alzheimer's. Yeah, of course, that's a possibility, but it is way more common to have this temporary lapse in memory due to perimenopause. Actually, a study done at the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, holy moly, that is a long medical school name, showed that most women did experience this cotton head sensation during perimenopause, but the majority rebounded to premenopausal levels of thinking afterwards. But what is the reasoning behind the brain farts and the inability to think straight of perimenopause? Forgetting why you walked into a room or someone you love's name is normal and it can happen due to multiple reasons. The aforementioned sleep disturbances and insomnia of menopause can be a culprit of unclear thinking as can increased stress making you feel frazzled and distracted. Of course, the hormonal influences of estrogen, progesterone, FSH, and LH all play a role in cognition as well and their fluctuating levels are responsible for fluctuating ability to think also. View it more as a disconnect from the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is the part of the brain that is involved with rational, linear, and planned thinking. Your attention can now be drawn inward to understand your own body and brain better and help you to follow your intuition for how to carry out the second half of your life. When to seek help with memory difficulties if you are having a memory change that came on suddenly or is accompanied by hallucinations, paranoia, or delusions, or if the memory lapses are putting you in harm's way, like if you're leaving the stove on after cooking dinner or forgetting where you're driving to. The last main symptom that I'm going to talk about here is hair thinning. While loss of hair may seem like a small price to pay for never having to deal with period cramps again, Hair loss is a really, really huge problem for people, and it stems from some really deep places and can be very scary for people. 
In a 2022 study, they found that 52.2% of menopausal and postmenopausal in America experience hair thinning and loss. So why does that happen? Well, declining hormone levels. You want to tell me after listening to last week's and this week's episodes that hormones don't have to do with every single thing in the body? Progesterone is a natural inhibitor of the enzyme 5-alpha reductase. This enzyme is what converts testosterone into DHT, which is the biggest contributor to hair loss in both men and women. With declining progesterone levels, 5-alpha reductase is able to easily convert into DHT, meaning that tons and tons of DHT is being produced, triggering further hair thinning and loss. This is why when you're pregnant, you can have increased hair growth, but once you're postpartum, your hair falls out. Because you had a surplus of progesterone floating around the body, and now that you're three months postpartum, you no longer have that progesterone, and your hair is like, bye! Another thing, hair grows in cycles of three months, and due to it being heavily influenced by hormones, if there is a traumatic or stressful event in three months' time, you can expect a purge of hair, as those follicles also say bye-bye. Crazy, right? Everything really is connected. Speaking of everything being connected, if you listen to Sperm Elevator Episode 8, You know all about the little glands that sit on top of your kidneys that make hormones. These glands are the adrenal glands, and they also have everything to do with menopausal changes. To provide catch-up for those who didn't listen to that episode yet, the adrenals are little triangle-shaped glands that sit on top of your kidneys and pump out a bunch of different hormones in response to pro-hormonal signals. They are crucial for an easy menopausal transition, and if you've been running yourself ragged and your body is coursing with stress hormones chronically, you are much more likely to have a rough perimenopausal time. This is classically called adrenal fatigue, but is really more of a dysregulation of how the adrenals talk to the rest of the body. If you want to know more about this, listen to the sperm elevator episode. But symptoms of this dysregulation are waking up groggy, needing sugar and caffeine to get through the day, difficulty getting your butt out of bed, exhaustion but difficulty falling asleep at night, anxiety, low libido, stress, fuzzy thinking, acne, GI upset, weight gain, depression, headaches, vaginal dryness, thinning or loss of hair, and irregular or painful periods. But wait, many of those are also symptoms associated with perimenopause. Hmm, what do we think that means? Well, it definitely means that adrenal care is number one when it comes to facing menopause. It's not necessary to have your adrenal glands tested to know that adrenal care could benefit your body at really any point in your life. If you experience the symptoms listed above, especially multiples of them, adrenal care could be in your future, irregardless of where you are at in life. The thyroid adrenal ovarian triad is a very common target in treating menopausal symptoms as they are all interconnected, as is the liver and the GI system in general, which is responsible for maintaining hormonal balances and decreasing inflammation. Speaking of testing, let's talk about hormonal testing to know whether or not you're in menopause. I just did a quick Google search to see what our normal society is thinking in regards to testing, and the top five answers that came up are all trying to sell me test kits to see if I'm quote-unquote in menopause yet. As we all now know, you're only ever in menopause for one day, so already I'm seeing some inaccuracies, but once I scroll down a little bit more, I'm seeing articles that fit a little bit more with my understanding and what I've already mentioned earlier on. Unless you have been put into surgical menopause, there is little help that can come from lab testing. Say I wanted to guess what a man's testosterone levels were at ages 40, 60, and 80. I could probably do that because testosterone is fairly stable day to day. If I wanted to guess what a woman's hormone levels looked like, I would have to know where she was in her cycle, what her exercise routines looks like, her average diet, 
I would need to know so many things about that particular individual woman that I wouldn't be able to just guess what her hormones look like. And as we reach menopause, our FSH levels are all over the place. A consistently elevated level of 30 or higher along with not menstruating for one year is what we need for a woman to be diagnosed as in postmenopausal time. However, a single FSH level can be misleading because the levels don't rise or fall at a steady rate. We could have above 30 one day and then 20 the next day. So you need more than one elevated level of FSH. Estrogen doesn't just one day start declining and then stay on a linear curve until you reach postmenopausal. Both estrogen and FSH can vary greatly day to day, and a low FSH level in a woman who is having active symptoms of hot flashes, brain fog, insomnia, all the other things that we've talked about, that doesn't mean that she is not in perimenopause or not close to reaching menopause. Bottom line, these companies are trying to sell you something that you do not need and do not tell you anything. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, there is no machine that you can be scanned into to know the day that you will reach menopause. It just has to be trial and error and watching your body and listening to find out when that time will come. The diagnosis of being perimenopausal is done based on history and signs and symptoms. There are no simple tests to confirm where you are at in the process, but as far as I know, this is continuing research, so maybe in the future that will change. So you go to your doctor, you tell them you're having all these perimenopausal symptoms that, and you're wanting help. Hopefully, you're not one of those 75% of women who leave their doctor's office disappointed and more confused. Hopefully, you have a quality doctor who is on your side and can help you through this time with ease. The mainstay treatment for perimenopausal symptoms is hormone therapy. There are different versions of hormone therapy, of course, including bioidentical hormones and non-bioidentical hormones. Both of these can improve hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, mood lability, irregular bleeding, vaginal dryness, and low libido with minimal impact on increasing the risks of other diseases. We also have lower levels of intervention, including dietary changes, exercise, stress management, nutritional supplements, and botanicals, and then non-hormonal pharmaceuticals can also be used in different scenarios as well. The hormonal therapies have only been approved to treat vasomotor symptoms, which is a fancy way of saying hot flashes, prevention of bone loss and hypoestrogenism, and to treat genitourinary symptoms. All other symptoms mentioned previously and a million times um, or those that are commonly associated with menopause in general have not been FDA approved to be treated with hormonal therapies. Does this mean hormone therapies won't work for those things? Well, that's context dependent. The most effective treatment for menopause-related vasomotor symptoms is estrogen with or without progesterone. Estrogen therapy is also the most effective treatment of moderate to severe symptoms of vulvar or vaginal symptoms. But there are questions of what's better, topical, local, or systemic use of these hormones. And if you're a woman in the marketplace for perimenopausal support, you should know yourself which is for which and what is for what so that you can make an informed decision with your doctor for what is best for you. Most importantly, if you have a uterus and you are using high-dose local or systemic estrogen, you must, must, must also be prescribed progesterone. This is non-negotiable, and at this point in time, if anyone ever tries to tell you differently, run. This is an incredible risk factor for developing endometrial cancer, and it raises your chances significantly. If there are only vaginal symptoms but no systemic symptoms, local vaginal estrogen therapy is advised. Progesterone in conjunction is generally not needed for low-dose vaginal applications. However, there is data lacking on safety of this beyond one year of use. 
For overactive bladder, an estradiol ring can reduce frequency and amplitude of bladder contractions due to promoting relaxation. Systemic therapies can worsen or provoke stress incontinence. In fact, no hormone therapy product currently has governmental approval for any urinary tract indication, and evidence of estrogen therapy for pelvic organ prolapse is also lacking. Both systemic and low-dose local estrogen therapy can be used to improve sexual satisfaction by increasing lubrication, blood flow, and sensation of the vaginal tissues, but hormonal therapy is not recommended as the sole treatment for other sexual function problems. Hormone therapy has been proven to improve quality of life in symptomatic women by alleviation of symptoms, but isn't useful in asymptomatic women, an example of you can't fix something that doesn't need to be fixed, and it can also improve mood in those with clinical depression. Scooching away from hormone therapies for just one second to discuss the long-term degenerative disorders that are consequences of just female aging in general, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, osteoporosis, a higher incidence of breast cancer, cognitive impairment, impaired vision, and even asthma. Hormone therapy is useful in regard to many of these conditions. It is used in preventing bone loss and fractures in postmenopausal women by improving and maintaining bone mineral density. However, it cannot be used as osteoporosis treatment, only prevention. Hormone therapy is most definitely not first-line therapy for osteoporosis. It has cardiovascular effects, reducing the risk of coronary heart disease, which is the leading killer of postmenopausal women, and one of the biggest risk factors of heart disease is insulin resistance, which is present to some degree in 50 to 75% of American women. It has been studied, however, that hormone therapy does reduce the diagnosis of new onset diabetes, which is an insulin resistance. On the flip side, there is conflicting research on hormone therapy increasing one's risk of developing breast cancer. Breast cancer is often an estrogen-responsive cancer, so if you have extra estrogen hanging around for a longer amount of time than you would have it if you just let it run its course naturally, then, of course, your risk of an estrogen-responsive disorder will be increased. They've seen that the diagnosis of breast cancer increased with estrogen and progestin therapy use beyond 3 to 5 years, but the risk was still 8 in 10,000. Surprisingly, even though breast cancer is estrogen receptive, it's actually surprisingly the progesterone that's the problem. When estrogen therapy was delivered alone, which remember cannot be done if you have a uterus, all age groups tested actually had a decrease in breast cancer risk as long as it was used for less than 15 years. In a large study, they found no increase in risk with less than 5 years of use, so if you've had a hysterectomy, then that option could totally work for you. What about if you've already had and beaten breast cancer? Hormone therapy is typically not recommended just because of the increased rate of recurrence, especially for BRCA survivors. However, low-dose local vaginal estrogen therapy is being considered as a viable option for many of these women as it doesn't increase the estrogen response on a systemic level and only vaginally. All hormone therapy decisions in a cancer survivor should be made in conjunction with an oncologist first and foremost. Before choosing a treatment plan, if hormone therapy is something that you're interested in, all of these need to be considered. The general health status and age, especially how far away you are from crossing into menopause, severity of symptoms, risk for developing other diseases, potential risks and benefit of available treatments, your lifestyle, and of course, your views on the treatment options. Make sure that your doctor pays attention to all of those pieces before you both come to a decision on how to treat. If both you and your doctor choose hormone therapy for the safety of your health, 
Make sure that your doctor does a complete physical on you, that you have had a recent pap, mammogram, and colonoscopy, and make sure that they order the following labs, lipids, CMP, CBC, TSH, and ferritin. All of these things, while it may seem annoying, while you're like, give me my hormones, please, I am dying. This is how we ensure that you are remaining safe on the hormones and they are necessary to keep you healthy. This way we can keep an eye on any changes as you flourish on your hormones. The last thing that I will say about hormone therapies, because I want you to be as well informed about what options you have as possible, because there are so many options out there, I want to talk about delivery methods. First, there are oral capsules. These are the most common dosage form, the least expensive, and they are relatively easy to use. However, the disadvantages are that they are subject to your stomach acid and go through first-pass metabolism. Both of these things mean that you are absorbing less than you are taking. There is also a higher clot risk with the capsule route as they activate the clotting mechanism within the body. Then there is sublingual dosing. These are rapidly absorbed, decrease first-pass metabolism, and they bypass the stomach acid, so they're being more absorbed. However, they obviously will interfere with salivary hormone testing if this is something that you are keeping an eye on your hormones with. They also don't taste great. And we can't confer that there is endometrial protection with a sublingual progesterone only. So we're unsure of the endometrial cancer risk reduction. If you go the sublingual trochee route, remember to ask for it to be compounded with stevia so that you don't die with the absolute terrible taste. For transdermal dosing, which is the patch or creams, these are super easy to use and avoid both first-pass metabolism and gut metabolism. If you don't like how you feel on them, you can super easily remove the patch or wash the cream off and the dose is gone. And you can easily cut them up or put less or more cream on for an adjustable dose. The disadvantage is dose variability based on where you're putting it on your body, the temperature and hydration of your skin, and also compliance can be difficult, and unfortunately, you can inadvertently dose another person from rubbing it on yourself and then touching someone else or something in the house that is also frequently touched by other people. They have done studies of women who are on topical progesterone and then testing the progesterone levels of their families and their kids, and the majority also have elevated levels of progesterone. So one must be incredibly careful if creams are the route chosen. I used to be pretty wary about hormone therapy because my original inclinations are that the body should be as natural as possible and why put something in that's not natural if it's not necessary. But that's the thing that I've learned. It's sometimes and often very necessary because women are not able to live the lives that they want without it and living your best life is what is most important. There are of course lots of things that we can do that aren't hormonal if that's something that you're not comfortable with or ready for. Talk with your doctor today about what your most bothersome symptoms are, and with that information, it is easy to know which alternative options we can give you today. We can literally hand you something as you walk out the door that will help today. Perimenopause and postmenopause should not be a struggle. Our age of society tells us that it should be a withering and dying away, but we now live 30 plus years past the average age of menopause, so absolutely not. We will not become boring, sex-deprived, peeing, depressed, and hairless women just because of a natural bodily process. That would be like deciding to close up shop after puberty. That doesn't make any sense at all. So why the heck would we want to do it for menopause, too? Women are strong, phenomenal forces of nature, and menopause is not the end. It is only a spring awakening. Okay, enough of that. I think I have said everything I want to say for you guys, so here are your sassy staples recap. One. 
Menopause is only one day of your life. It is the 366th day after your last bleed, the 367th day you are postmenopausal. In fact, you'll probably actually totally not even recognize the one day of your life that you have to enjoy being just menopausal. It will pass just like any normal day, most likely. Number two, menopause is not a time of withering, shriveling, drying up, or dying. It is a time of change in your life and should be thought of as just a toss-up of hormones like puberty. Your body is like, blah, for a few years, and you're like, OMG, I can't survive this. But remember, there's help, and you don't need to be in pain, uncomfortable, or peeing uncontrollably, or depressed, or anxious, or awake all night long. You have options. Number three, adrenal care is really, really important in harmonizing the body and regulating hormones as much as possible. Never, never forget about your little adrenal boys. Number four, hormone therapy or non-hormonal therapies all have their pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages. Go into the process informed and have an idea of exactly what you want to have remedied by choosing a therapy because each different type of therapy remedies different symptoms. For example, don't choose progesterone-only therapy to fix hot flashes because it's estrogen therapy that is primarily responsible for remedying these. Knowing exactly what you want from your therapies is how you will be most satisfied by them because you'll know exactly what to ask for. My last sassy staple of today is a little clinical pearl. Say you've gone a few months without a period and you're like, yes, I'm coming up to being done with this crap. I am so excited. And then you have a huge period, like bigger than any period you've ever had before. And you're just like bummered out. You thought you were so close. And then this insane period just hits you out of the blue. Well, I actually have good news for you. When the ovaries are finally, finally putting up that close sign, they give one last humongous push of estrogen, a huge assault of estrogen. And it gives you the hugest period ever because they're like, we never need this again. Let's get it all out at once. Like when you see that the pie is going bad in the fridge, but there's still half a pie left. You're not just going to eke it out and only eat one piece of pie a day till it goes bad and then throw it in the trash. No, you're going to eat as much pie as you can fit in your stomach because it's going bad and it won't be till next year that you get to eat another coconut cream pie. Your ovaries aren't going to eke out the estrogen for their next use. They know that they don't need that estrogen anymore. So they're going to store it all up and then push it all out at once to give you a huge period and then... You are on your way to menopause, my dear. Start counting. Thank you everyone for listening today. Menopause is obviously something that every single woman goes through in her life and therefore it really affects every single person on the planet because every man and child will encounter a woman who is going through the transition at some point and it's important for everyone to be educated about it. As always, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and share the Sassy Speculum with your friends and family. Please reach out with any stories, questions, things you liked or didn't like, or really whatever at all, either on social media at Sassy Speculum, or you can email me at sassyspeculum at gmail.com, or if you'd prefer to be anonymous, you can go to www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum, that's my website, and fill out the form on there to send me a message without your name. I love hearing from everyone, and I love hearing what you thought about each episode, so keep reaching out, and if you haven't reached out before, What is holding you back? I would love to hear from you. That's all. Bye.